0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Wilshire, host. And I'm pretty excited about tonight's guest, Dr. Michael Masters. It's been a while since he's been on. He's written a book since then. He's a uh, and uh, he has his PhD in anthropology, and he has an idea that what we may be seeing driving the vehicles could be time travelers. I think that's a, I think that's a concept of. Uh, That is very fascinating. A friend of mine told me when she was about, I think she said when she was six or seven years old, she actually had that idea and she knew about UFOs and she was uh, thinking that that's a possibility. I'm sorry. She said she was 12. I think she said, but anyway, I I think that's uh, fascinating. He's not the first one to think of it, but he has really thought it out and made a lot of uh, really interesting uh, conclusions Uh, of the possibilities of that in particular. So before uh, Dr. Michael Masters, I have Karen Briard, and she is going to be talking about an exciting thing that I'm going to be attending, and I'll let her talk about that. Well, I'll give a little bit of a clue. International UFO Congress live in Phoenix. I guess I kind of gave it away. But uh, the blog this week from Charles Lear, a great one as usual, is called An Ohio UFO Case. That was Left to Die. So another great one by Charles Lear. And uh, he did that uh, one last week about ufology in China. And uh, his he's really getting good at all these different languages and pronunciations. At least they sound good anyway. But uh, I, that's enough for me. I want to thank everyone that supports the show. Anyone can do that over at podcastufo.com. It's right up on the menu bar to support the show. For now, I'm bringing in Karen. Karen, welcome.
1: Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so excited to have you for you to talk about what's going on. I'm really, really excited about the live conference this year. And I think it's going to be a a gangbuster because I think people are kind of fed up with this COVID thing. They're dying to go somewhere. And uh, you're even having this at another resort that there's a lake around it. I mean, right near it and all that Mm -hmm. I'm so excited about. So let's hear the details, Karen, about the dates and date and all that. And by the way, I will link all that information in in a link in the show notes and up on YouTube as well after this show tonight.
1: Thank you so, for that.
0: Oh yeah. So let's hear about it.
1: Yeah. We're so excited um, to be back after three years and at our new venue, which is really beautiful. Um, I know that, you know, I, I got a lot of uh, feedback that when, when we left the week of um that, you know, they wanted something kind of more like that. I tried to go back to the week of but it's not the same anymore. And oh, yeah. very, very, very expensive, um, so I found the place in Mesa. Um, it's actually the Cubs um, baseball team's um, spring training field and hotel. Um, it's got lots of great places to socialize, a big bar, a big pool area, a big restaurant. And then out front, it has this big, it has this lake with palm trees and a walking path. So you can take a nice evening walk or morning walk. And uh, that can just, we play
0: like, baseball any, any UFO, uh, I don't know ufology that, baseball teams no i won't
1: tell anybody no. if you sneak on the field okay
0: <laughs> all right <laughs>
1: i'll see what i can do
0: uh
1: we can have like yeah the uh ufo baseball team yeah uh yeah.
0: the who's against the who's we have to figure out
1: yeah so, yeah mm-hmm. there yeah, is
0: division in ufo
1: we yeah. hear, hear quite, quite a bit so nuts and bolts maybe i think
0: ufo twitter against the non-twitter maybe uh, that should be it yeah
1: idea. Good
0: idea. <laughs> but well, anyway, uh, let's hear who the guests are. I know you, you, you don't well, have them all signed the up, right? Yeah. I'll start okay. with
1: the dates. It is October 12th through 16th. We're doing mm-hmm. it a little bit different. We're starting Wednesday night. That le- allows people to get, you know, a little bit more time to get there. Um, so we'll start with the banquet. Like we always have a banquet on Wednesday night. We're going to continue to do that where we'll give out um, prizes from the vendors and things like that, uh, raffles and whatnot. Um, and then it goes then 13th, the 14th and the 15th will be um, all lectures. And then Saturday night we'll have our awards banquet like we always do. And then Sunday is going to be uh, reserved for workshops that we'll be announcing. Um, hmm. So, uh Those are the days. And then some of the events that we're going to have this year, we're going to have the experiencer sessions, which are when experiencers talk and discuss their uh, encounters. Um, And that's free to anyone who has a ticket. And then... uh, we are going to have the uh, UFO Jeopardy. That's We're going to have one evening. We're going to play UFO Jeopardy and UFO trivia. Dun, and dun,
0: dun, 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 dun. Okay, great. Awesome.
1: Uh, the Skywatch with Ben Hansen. That That's always be,
0: fun. Yeah. At
1: uh, South Mountain. That'll be an extra excursion that you can take. And then this year, since it's near Halloween, we're going to do a, a costume party. A Halloween costume party. So oh, extra luggage.
0: Extra luggage.
1: Bring yeah. their, their mask with them. And uh, yeah. So uh, a fun-filled event with lots of things to do, and of course, the film festival. So you can be a judge and judge them or screen them if you'd like. Um, And uh, we're also going to have it a virtual. You can buy a virtual ticket as well. So then you can follow along on the Whova app, just like the last two conferences we've had. Um, So they'll be able to participate too. Awesome. And uh, some of our... Wonderful speakers are David Marler, and he is best known for his triangle triangular UFO research. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also has tons of other things that he's working on. Um, he did a battle of L.A., and I think he's going to do a new case this time. So that'll be really interesting. Great. He also has one of the biggest, the largest, maybe the largest library of UFO related materials anywhere, which right. is in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He, he, um, he keeps,
0: uh, I don't know how he keeps jamming it in his garage, but. I think he just keep. I, I think he
1: might be building, I think he's built on a, yeah. an addition since. Then.
0: He needs a bigger boat. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, he's yeah. actually,
1: he'll probably talk about, their, um, they're going to eventually move it to, well, when he passes away, it'll be going to the University of Albuquerque, I think. Or...
0: No, I think that's right. Physical. University of that's Alejandro. Okay, en- over there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um But uh, Yvonne Smith, she'll be here to do the Experiencer Sessions, Um, hypnotherapist who works with contactees. Um, Brian Bender, he is the Politico reporter who broke one of the first stories about the Pentagon UFO program. And since then, of course, he's released story after story um, about UFOs. And in fact, I think it was his article that pushed the government to have that hearing that they had you know, most recently, because they hadn't planned anything until that article came out. So it's kind of interesting that he's yeah. manipulating other people by what he writes. Um, yeah. Of course, Michael Masters, who's going to be on later, yeah, um, is coming again. Um, and he's got that great talk about um, what aliens might be from the future or future coming back to visit us. So yeah. uh, Katie Page, MUFOL and uh, Field Investigator, she'll be here Talking about her investigations and also uh, her own experiences. Um, oh, so going back to David, David, I think, is going to talk about uh, a case about a child who witnessed a UFO and had physical effects from that. Right. At the uh,
0: laundromat or something. Right. I remember yeah. the story. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's a fascinating case.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, ben Hansen will do our Skywatch and also um, he's going to have, have a talk about. Um, what if you know we were invaded, and what are the what might happen? And because he's doing research right now, he's getting a, a master's or a PhD. I'm not sure um, in disaster management. So he's going to take wow. it from that perspective, and um, it's going to be based on his thesis. So that'll be pretty interesting. Wow! And yeah. then uh, John Ramirez. Yes. And I just became familiar with him. Um, he was former CIA or FBI. CIA. Yeah. Um, yeah And he has a lot of interesting things to share about what he witnessed as far as, can you refresh my memory about that?
0: Yes. Um, well, a lot of it was what he actually, he was a, kind of was interested in UFOs to begin with before he mm-hmm. ever started. But he will talk about this situation when he went to something that was open to the public, basically. And they started talking about what they think they uh, visitors may be, you know, in an open meeting, which was really oh, bizarre. And there were a lot of people there from that had email addresses he looked at that had edu, a lot right. of uh, you know college professors and yeah. thing, uh, people like that were visiting. so yeah. but yeah, he has a great, great story. yeah, he, uh,
1: him highly recommended, so yeah. glad yeah. we're getting him. and um Stacy Wright, she um, is the state director, oh, yeah. uh, the on state director for Arizona, yeah. and she's actually going to talk about the big event in 1997 in Phoenix, where we had um, a big flyover of UFOs. So she's going to talk about that.
0: Great. Phoenix lights, March 13th, 1997. That's right. I believe that's right. Anyway. Wow. I'm so excited. I know you have, I believe you have several more people that you just get to get the contract signed. And um, so all that information will be on your website when, when that's all updated.
1: Right. Yes. You can so get a ticket yeah. right now at www.ufocongress.com um, and check out all the different um, options there as, as far as tickets. Um, and I just want to mention the vendors. We are going to have vendors right now. I'm working on getting that um, application together. And so that'll be posted soon as well. So if you want to Excellent. sell something, uh, you can come on and do that.
0: Excellent. Karen, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you out there. Uh, and be at be that so new exciting. venue.
1: I know. Be we'll up, like two months away so yeah um, i know it'll go, go fast too <laughs>
0: <laughs> summer always goes way too fast here yeah. but anyway thank you oh, so much
1: mention, um yeah. there's also a link on the website to book your hotel use that link to book your hotel to get the the group rate and don't you know don't hesitate because there are a limited amount of um, hotel rooms there's less hotel rooms than at uh the week of paw however once those are gone we're going to have other hotels very close by to yeah. um take up the slack. But if you want to be right there at the hotel, book your hotel now.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea. All right, Karen, you take care.
1: All right. You too, Martin. All right.
0: Say hi to Alejandro. All right. Adios. Okay. Thanks. Bye now. All right. And now the one and only Dr. Michael Masters. How are you, Michael? Hey, Martin. Good. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Always, uh, always enjoy uh, having, well, you've only been on the show once, so I can't say, well, I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, we've we've definitely talked more than once, but when was that,
2: 2019?
0: It was, I believe so. And you've written a book since then, but you also came on for my um, 10th year anniversary, which I. Oh, yeah,
2: hashtag Pod Party. That's right. That was fun. (laughs) Pod Party. That's right. I forgot all about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. But anyway, um, so why don't you, for the person who has never seen you on this show before or not familiar with you, why don't you give quickly your background and how you came up with this uh theory. you you had uh, kind of an interest i heard on another interview something happened when you were younger but let's uh let's start from the beginning uh is that is that so something did you have some type of encounter or something
2: um no not really it was just sort of a precognitive thing and i've had precognition my entire life it's always been dream precognition this is one of few Oh that's right it was a it was dream conscious. yeah I remember. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't actually. I was awake. I was, Um. I had heard about a UFO encounter that my dad had before I was born. He was telling that story around the age of eight. And when Whitley Strieber's book came out, he got a copy of it and it was up on the shelf. And I remember looking at it and had sort of this flash of light, I guess. That's the best way to describe it. And um, envision, actually I have one right here. I think I used this in my book, just kind of a simple uh, caricature of of what I saw, just an early hominin form, a modern human, and then this quintessential gray alien form from the front cover of Whitley's book. And um, yeah, it just kind of got me curious if we could be connected, if they could just be further extension of long-term evolutionary trends that characterize the last six to eight million years. Obviously, I wasn't thinking of it in these terms as an eight-year-old, um, it, but... It, it was it was at least enough to to pique my interest and get me uh, to research it further. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of been a lifelong pursuit. But I'm, I'm always quick to point out that, you know, I'm, I'm quite aware of how that can lead to confirmation bias and selection bias. But uh, as as a scientist, we are always forced to be aware of those things and take precautions to avoid those. So, um, yeah, it was more of just a a, a lifelong inquiry into this question of of whether or not UFOs and aliens could be future humans coming back through time. And, um, yeah, as you mentioned in the intro, I'm not the first person to think of it. it. It arrived in my mind independently as an eight year old, but after publishing my first book, I got the opportunity to meet a ton of other people who have also thought this and put it out there. In fact, in the first chapter of my new book, I try to make a comprehensive list of all of the people I could find, uh, working in different capacities to make this more conventionally understood notion and uh, goes back all the way to the 40s as far as as far as I could tell. So, Hmm. um, yeah, that's the Cliff Notes version, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you have come up with an idea of why, you know, some people say, well, she said if it's the infamous grays, so to speak, then how could we possibly evolve to that? But you kind of have you lay that all out in your first book. I don't know. Uh, I can and you can talk about that a little bit. But uh, what was your second book on? Is it more of the same or things that you learned since uh, since that time that you wrote your first book?
2: No, it's it's a fundamentally different book. It's a different approach to the question as well. Um, the first book. Yeah, I mostly took a multidisciplinary approach where I looked at. um this, this question of extra tempestrials, as I call them, and whether or not they could be us from the future, um, drawing from anthropology, obviously, astronomy, physics, and astrobiology, and mostly focused on long-term trends in hominin evolution, rather than speculating about what might happen between now and whatever point in the future or futures they might be coming back from just focusing on these existing trends that characterize the last six to 8 million years of hominin evolution, most notably an increase in our cranial capacity and a more rounded skull in general. We have a, a mediolateral expansion of our parietal lobes. Our frontal cortex has grown out over the eyes to the extent that we're the only mammal with that craniofacial characteristic. Our mid and lower facial anatomy have shrunk back. Um, we've lost body hair our hands have become highly dexterous, we've created tools and technology. So if all these trends that characterize uh, the hominin past continue into the future, we are likely to look and act very similar to what's described in most of these closed encounters. I also looked at some problems with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, um, one being the just how unlikely it is, the low probability that we would evolve the same way to be upright walking hominins on a different planet with different atmosphere, different distance from the sun, uh, most likely a different coding system other than the four base pair DNA that that codes uh, all life on this planet. Um, and then just also the physics of time and time travel, how we might actually get to the point, since there is nothing in the laws of physics that prohibits backward time travel, how we might get to the point where we can physically do it and return to the past in sort of a nuts and bolts capacity. But this most recent book... Um, sort of flips that. I didn't really talk about abductions or close encounters too much in the first one, but this one mostly focuses on 15 individual case studies, um, well-documented, well-researched case studies in the context of this extraterrestrial model, but also other models put forth to explain this phenomenon, uh, interdimensional hypothesis, obviously the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the simulation hypothesis, ultra-terrestrials and others. So it's not... Um, it's it's definitely not the same book i did include a lot of things that occurred to me or information that was given to me after writing the first book that i felt i should have included in the first one but it's not based around that it's just worked into uh that core concept of of a case study it's basically a case study of case studies
0: interesting um so there'll be a there'll be a few questions i see one popped up um that i'll get to it in just a minute but one of the things i believe i may have asked you this um off air so um i'm going to ask you now is it possible um some people say that it would be kind of a miracle if we can make it through another hundred years without wiping ourselves out from yeah. either climate change or or nuclear weapons or whatever it is is it possible that we could be completely wiped out in you know like some type of extinct extinction and to start another like you know biped you said you talked about the atmosphere the gravity and all that uh bipedal uh being that eventually evolves into what we call the grays and they get highly intelligent and, and then they figure out the time travel thing eventually after say 2 million years from now or a million years from now considering we're supposed to be developed only between there's controversy between 190 and 300,000 years something like that um which to me, seems like not very much time uh, in the scope of things. Um, I'm kind of rambling here, but what are your thoughts on all that stuff I just threw at you?
2: Well, I mean, that's basically the same idea, just without the cataclysmic event that starts everything over. And and I don't necessarily think that will happen. Um, yeah, I mean, the future looks bleak from our vantage point looking forward. But um, if these are future humans, a lot of what we can learn from contact cases seems to indicate that we are moving toward, uh, a state of empathy, a higher consciousness. And I think that would translate into, uh, environmental policies, social policies, political relationships. And so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic of the future, especially if we can consider these individuals as future humans. And obviously some people have negative experiences, but, uh, the majority, especially ones involving humans, based on research from the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free Study, indicate that 85% of people actually enjoy or are neutral about their experience. Um, mm-hmm. So so I don't necessarily think that's the case. And also another thing that I learned uh, in researching this, this most recent book is that, it, you know, the first one was written around this idea that it, it's these grays. We're evolving into them and then i would always get asked well how long you know what's the time frame on that and and i really to get those characteristics considering the accelerating curve of change especially in our cranial capacity and the the shape of the skull we've become uh, neurocranial globularity is the the characteristic that defines uh, modern humans in addition to our chin uh, those two traits are what uh, demarks our specific anatomically modern homo sapien sapien designation um but in researching this uh, this most recent book, I realized that a lot of these encounters, and in fact, again, based on the Dr. Edgar Mitchell research, are with humans that look just like us and talk like us, not even to the point where we develop telepathy and in, in a higher consciousness that allows that through the mind, but physical modern humans in the same way that we are. And it, it made me think, I, I sort of had to revise the way I was approaching this. It made me realize that we're likely to have this technology much sooner than I previously thought, possibly even within the next hundred years, it may possibly exist now. And it's just not common knowledge yet because that's the way the military works. If they have been reverse engineering a time machine that crashed in the 1947, they've had 70 years to do that. Uh, Initially I'm sure they would work on the propulsion systems and then start figuring out some of the other characteristics of these craft. And if, time travel capabilities or the ability to manipulate space time is one of those. Uh, We're bound to figure that out sooner than later, I think. So I think just the trajectory we're on seems to indicate that we're not going to have some massive reset. We're not just going to start over and then have to do this in two million years or three million years, but that it could likely happen within the next couple hundred years.
0: Wow. Um, if, If that's the case, haven't didn't I hear, and there's some type of, uh, I don't know what's coming through your computer or something. I don't know if that's something you can uh, silence or not.
2: Yeah, uh, sorry about that. I thought yeah. my phone was on silent, but it apparently was not.
0: So you, you mentioned th- it, it appears in physics that you can go back in time. How about, and I'm not trying to make a movie reference here, but how about back to the future, back to the current? You know, just you, yeah. going forward. That's a tough part. I mean, maybe you can go back, but can you go back? back to the time you just left from.
2: is that a problem? Yeah, no. And I'm, yeah. I make the case that that's much more intuitive than uh, beings traveling from a different planet coming all the way across the the universe or the galaxy most likely and, and picking someone up, studying them covertly and, and leaving without having any formal contact. It, it doesn't seem um, all that likely that they would do that without at least acknowledging their presence. But in the context of of backward time travel and the work that they seem to be doing uh in these abduction cases in particular which was the focus of this most recent book um there's also consistency across time people describe seeing the same types of crafts and these beings doing the same types of things regardless of where it is in the world or i my book goes back 90 years in um in these encounters and you would expect that if the same technology from these points in the future is coming back through different times You would have the exact same beings in the same craft who are being observed and people are interacting with them in these different time periods. But obviously, there's consistency across time because it's the same individuals. And it also makes sense in the context of their perspective, their work day, where they could go back and and pick somebody up as a kid. I talk about this as an example because it's very common in a number of abduction cases with lifelong abductees is they don't appear to age at all. And we would expect that if they're going back, they could pick up a kid at age five, again, at age 25, again, at age 60, again, at age 90. And to them, you know, they're they're aging throughout their entire life. But these beans don't seem to age because they could do all of that in a couple of days. That's two days of work for them or maybe even one day if they're very efficient. Um, so we see them as not aging because to them it's a few hours of work, whereas for us, it's an entire lifetime. And we can take that metaphor and extend it backward through very long periods of time. And I I think it helps explain that aspect of it, too. And we interpret it differently, the fairies and leprechauns and any of the other things we ascribe to a deity status in many cases. Um, But it's it's probably just the same beings, the same humans from uh, points in the future that are doing similar things in these different time periods. And we we recognize it and describe it in very different ways, depending on our own level of technology and understanding.
0: There's some type of thing that uh, um, there's like a time dilation or something. A lot of people will describe with an encounter and, you know, the missing time you hear about over and over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would that be any type of effect of uh, time travel, time travel um, craft or something? And, And is that what they're doing in the craft? Is that is that their time machine?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think it is. I don't think the triangular ones are. Those seem to have a different purpose that I can talk about in my book uh, to a pretty uh, high degree as far as the amount of time dedicated to that question of the ships themselves, because th- there is variation. They're not all silvery disc-shaped craft. Obviously, the Tic Tac mm. doesn't fall into that either. But I do think the the classic UFO, the flying saucer, is the actual time machine and that they have the ability to manipulate space-time in and around that's clear from jim peniston's encounter um i talk about a case uh, linda jones who had a, a number of abduction experiences but in manchester uk um, where they describe this as they approach this machine um corporal Arm- armando valdez is another great example he disappeared for 15 minutes to his men there were six other uh, members of his platoon and they watched him disappear 15 minutes in their frame of reference. He emerges, but five days had passed to him. And that is a clear indication of a difference in the warpage and the rate of time passing in and around these craft versus farther out. you see it time and time again. In fact, Hal put off a reference, his talk at the SCU conference last year, maybe two years ago, uh, where he describes the same thing. And he thinks it can even account for the missing time because there's a blue shift. That happens and it speeds up time so that when people emerge they have missing time not necessarily because they were inundated or unconscious for a period of time which i do think is the case in many abductions but because uh, time was blue shifted and and hmm. light is blue shifted which is why they glow this incredible bright white it helps explain the the radiation burns that are so common because you're shifting out of the visible light spectrum into the x-ray spectrum part of the light spectrum so so i think there's a lot of aspects of the influence on individuals in the passage of time, um, the way light appears, uh, because they're manipulating the space-time metric is how Putoff describes it. Um, but but also the g-forces, I think that's one that also should be discussed because if they are perceiving time differently, it's potentially why we can see them drop eighty thousand feet to sea level, such as the case with the Tic Tac. Uh, in a matter of like 1.2 seconds or whatever it was, I think the SU calculated that at 12,000 Gs, which nobody would be able to survive that. The, the machine itself probably wouldn't. But if they are manipulating space time in and around that craft, what we see is this one second 80,000 foot descent to them could be a very slow descent where it's just 1 G. It's um, not even something that they would necessarily feel. And that is described in a number of case studies where people are in these ships and travel very very quickly but they feel no motion whatsoever and i reference a number of those cases as well so i think this question of g forces is moot because it's really just an issue of these different frames of reference these different temporal frames um where we probably look like really slow moving uh giant sloths or something uh whereas you know in their frame of reference they're the fly that's zipping around the room i think it's just a uh, an aspect of, of the way time flows in and around these machines. Well, um, Travis Walton is another case where
0: he thought he was gone for, you know, a few hours and ended up being, I think it was four or five
2: days. I can't it was remember. five days. And I think he was unconscious for a lot of that because there was an electrostatic discharge that knocked him out. And I think that was a, kind of a, a medical intervention. He, he thinks that same yeah, thing that's as right. well. Yeah. So in that case, I think it was five days. And I talk about that, compare and contrast. And that's the whole reason I wrote this book is because patterns emerge after a while. And if you look at all these different case studies, and I could only include 15 in this particular book, but I was putting in others, I'd say in total, there's probably double that as far as other cases that I sort of weave in, even though I didn't explore them with the same uh, amount of text per se. Um, but yeah, you compare that to the Linda Jones, you compare that to Armando Valdez, Jim Penniston's encounter, they, they all start to signal the same thing, but it manifests in different ways. And and Travis Walton is one that I think he was actually physically gone in five days ship time, five days out of ship time, whereas some of the other ones, it's a short encounter viewed outside of that frame of reference, but inside there's a different story. Now, what you were just talking about before, the possibility
0: of how these things move and can go 80,000 feet, and it seems, uh, and no G-force, uh killing whatever's occupying it, um, smushing it. Is it. Does that also account for what we never hear is a breaking of a sound barrier when these mm-hmm. things are going extremely fast? And how about the transmedia as well, going between water and and air and things yeah. like that. Is that all that all accounts? seems, sounds like it does account for. Yeah, I things.
2: think it does. Um, and, and I, I, say that exact thing, uh, in, in the extra tempestrial model that there's, there's a lot of those behavioral characteristics of these ships that seem to defy the laws of physics and the way we understand it. But once we do figure out what time is, how time works, most physicists agree we'll need a theory of quantum gravity combining quantum. Um, uh quantum mechanics with general relativity. So I had a quick brain fart there. Um this this unified theory of the two once that happens we'll start to understand and be able to manipulate time and most likely travel backward in time. Um but yeah not even just the the g forces, the transmedium capabilities, the um but I also think the light beam that they often use to abduct people and they can move them through solid matter which Mm -hmm. freaks people out, and I I think I would be freaked out by that too if I just went through a wall. Um, I think that probably has something to do with it too. It's a manipulation of of the space-time in and around that beam that's used to levitate people and take them through solid matter. Interesting. Time, linear, circular? What do you think time is? Time is a block is our best explanation of it. Um, So not really linear or circular. It's just a a massive block of all moments that have and will ever exist. And and that's the most conventional explanation for um, space time because we can't separate time from space. They're intricately linked, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, that's the dominant model among physicists. And I think it's accurate to the best of my knowledge and and what I've read. Um, and And it does make sense in the context of how we would travel to the past and and what would happen and, and specifically what wouldn't happen? We wouldn't have to worry about paradoxes in the way they're oftentimes presented in horrible movies like Back to the Future, which you just mentioned. And <laughs> it is a great movie. I love that movie, but they do a horrible job with time travel because like, he starts disappearing from this Polaroid because his parents are. You don't like DeLoreans either, probably. I do, like, I do like DeLoreans. Actually, I saw one <laughs> when I was in California last week and I, I kind of wanted it. Um, but no, I think within the context of block time, you, you can understand how these these paradoxes, consistency paradoxes, uh, the bootstrap paradox, they, they don't they aren't actually paradoxical. It's really only when you have change when you can change the past that you start to run into these problems. And that doesn't exist in the block universe model. There is no change. Um, and one thing actually in, in reference to what you said earlier, whether I, I built on the previous book or added new things, one thing I didn't talk about at all in the first book was the multiverse model, oh. um, different mm. timelines. And and mm. I didn't think I needed to because the block universe model is so widely understood um, among philosophers, physicists and others. But it, it, it's still important to discuss. Uh, so I do bring that up more in the second book and, and talk about things like all of these warnings that people have or like. The interventions at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Mino Air Force Base, where they shut down these nuclear uh, warheads Mm -hmm. in in the context of what abductees uh, see in these visions or uh, the telepathic communications, or sometimes they're shown videos on a video screen of all of these war-like scenarios. So that needs to be discussed Mm -hmm. in the context of can it be avoided or are they trying to prevent something from happening because they see a potential problem? Um, and that's that's really where the, the multiverse model, many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics gets brought into the conversation because it's a very different situation in the block universe versus the many worlds interpretation. So I, I really kind of tease those apart and, and talk about them in that context more in this most recent book. In the
0: block the theory of time, block universe or whatever you, you mentioned, uh, how does the the grandfather paradox fit into that it does not fit. it sounds like it does not apply to how, can you try to explain why that doesn't work you can't go back and if you went back and killed your grandfather you wouldn't exist type of thing
2: yeah you just you can't if you didn't go back and kill your grandfather you you won't it, it will never happen because those the moments are already structured and and, and it's easy to think about um is looking backward. You know, you can look back and see, well, there's all these possibilities in the future. But um, eventually, as the present moved through those, there just became one real outcome. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it works in block time. That's just our brains uh, imposing this linearity to something that exists as a much greater whole. So if if you didn't kill your grandfather, there's really no way you could because that, that moment in the past is structured in the way that eventually led to your parents and led to you or at least one of your parents because um, you, you you can't disrupt the past. You can't change the past. Anything that you do in the past, you already did. And any ramification, any effect has already manifested itself before you go back to do it in the first place. It doesn't change anything. There's no change. And, and like I said earlier, these paradoxes are really only paradoxical in the context of change. So the, we do run into these in the multiverse, they do become problematic if there's different timelines, knowing which timeline to travel to, what's happening in each one. There's a lot of other issues, whether they even exist, there's still no evidence that there are other uh dimensions or other worlds, so to speak. Um, so it's just you know, the whole thing I try to do is is shave with Occam's razor. I haven't made that joke in three years, so I'm gonna throw it out <laughs> again. <laughs> just try to have the simplest explanation with the fewest assumptions. And in this most recent book, I use an abductive approach, which is just a coincidence that that happens to be the same word as abduction, or at least very similar, where it's um, just inference to the best explanation. You, You can't use inductive or deductive reasoning. You can't have ultimately a conclusion. But you look at all of the available evidence and we can't necessarily apply the same standards of evidence that have been developed in the rigors of science because the ufo phenomenon is different we have to recognize that but in considering all of these different um the the information that's available to us at this time we can take that and develop an idea about what fits best with that information And, and that's what i'm trying to do in this this book is just um look at all these different interpretations and figure out which one has the fewest assumptions and is the most parsimonious explanation
0: when you get a case like the, and, and I'll get to your questions uh, on in the chat. Thank you for posting them. Uh, when you get to cases like the Ariel school incident, they pretty much described, you know, sort of like a white porcelain type skin. The black eye is similar to what you picture the grays. People are talking about the grays have, but there were some definite characteristic differences. And when I think about time travel and I think about the grays of the majority um, could there possibly be, I mean, travelers from a future way beyond uh, the grays that are coming back to say that the the earth, the sun doesn't swell up too big and, you know, burn the earth surface at this point? You know, how, what is it? I don't know how many billion years we have or millions of years we have left here. But in way in the future, could the different types of descriptions of the beings people are claiming they're seeing? be from different times.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that can explain a good amount of the variation. Uh, and I tackle this in both of my books because um, I think it is important to acknowledge that they're not all human. Again, based on the Dr. Edgar Mitchell-Free study, the majority were human, not, not just human looking or humanoid or human like, but human described exactly how we would describe each other in this current time. After that, the next most common was the short grays and then the tall grays. And it was only about 5% that were uh, more strange beings, dog-manted man, insects, like reptilians, yeah. whatever. So that indicates a, a couple of things. And I'd, I've been using this metaphor recently. I think I, I mentioned it once in a different show. Um, but I think it's, it's a, an important way of thinking about it because... I refer to this as temporal variation. We have geographic variation that exists now. It's why people look different from one another in, in Sub Saharan Africa, Australia, Native Americans, and so forth, because we've evolved to different conditions in these different places. And those geographic racial variations may continue into the future as well. But if we start coming back in time, we're going to be coming from different points, most likely. In the same way, we didn't give up fire, we didn't give up tools once we invented those we're likely not going to give up time travel either. Once we Mm. figure out how to do it, we would expect that our descendants into the deep future would also be doing the same thing and coming back to different times. And I think that can help explain this temporal variation as well because in in the, the metaphor I use is if you think about geographic space as an example for how we would expect to see more human individuals than we would these very distant human individuals with the and i think that's what the tall greys are i think they are a very distant point in the human future they also seem from these case studies if we can take these abductions seriously and i think we should especially when there's so many describing the same thing we can see patterns in them they seem to be running the show they seem to have this really just deep intellect this super high consciousness and they're they're not necessarily controlling but influencing what's happening um, in these abduction cases when there are multiple different forms present. And that is very common to see. So the metaphor is that when you leave your house, it's more likely that you're going to see people that live in close proximity to you. You're going to see your neighbors first, then you're going to see people that live in your town. It's less likely that you'll run into someone from Zimbabwe or Australia if you live in the United States, simply because they're further away in space. And I think that metaphor translates to this, this temporal variation characteristic as well where we'd expect to see people in closer proximity to us in time as we get farther out in time we become a small blip on their massive you know possibly million year i think a lot of this happens sooner than what a lot of people think but if you're looking back over five years you're more likely to find people within that five years looking back over a million years now we're just one small part of that and we see the same thing in archaeology where we find things that are more recent and much higher numbers Whereas things that are much older, we find uh, less often, just because of all the things that can happen in the time between when that was deposited and when we happen to discover it in a much deeper layer of sediment. So, I think, I think, yeah, the temporal variation aspect of this is important to consider. And I think, if you do consider it, it really starts to indicate that time travel is a part of the equation.
0: Well, if there, there's kind of a paradox here that I see. And that is if you can't go back and say you kill your grandfather, you can't change the past. The past is already laid out. So, how can these have an influence? You say they they seem to have an influence. To me, that would be changing the
2: past somehow. Only if um no, I don't I I see what you're saying, but if if they'd always been doing these things and I, and I think that that sort of uh, Star Trek and prime directive aspect is is a part of this too. They don't seem to be really trying to influence us too much. Some people will claim that they're manipulating our DNA, they're planning technology. I, I don't touch that maybe. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of indications of that, but it is a possibility. But if if they had done those things, they will have always done those things. And it doesn't mean that they're making anything different. It's just an aspect of what they had always done. A good, a good way of thinking of it is if um, you're visited, say, as a 10 year old by your 50 year old self, you know, for certainty that when you're 50, you will go back and meet your 10 year old self because mm-hmm. those moments are structured that way. There's already a bridge that that spans across and connects those places in space time. Um, and and if anyone's confused by that, you know, the first book I I lay it out in two different chapters. The last chapter in my new book, I, I cite a number of philosophers and physicists who really help solidify this concept. And 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 I think it's important, you know, to to talk about because the the physical reality of this involves the physical manipulation of space time and actually taking ships and individuals through time um, so it, it shouldn't be discounted but a lot of people do struggle with the block universe model even though in, in my opinion it's the most intuitive and it does make a lot of sense and it does feel right within this this uh, physical reality that we that we currently exist in <clears throat>
0: hmm. okay I'm gonna pop up a couple of questions here and this one uh, dr. Richard wants to know why will humans evolve to have such big
2: eyes I love that question. Um, Mostly because that's what I study is eyes. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah. my very first project in grad school was to look at what happens to the eye um, in the context of our, like I mentioned in the beginning of the show, we're the only mammal that's had our our frontal neurocortex grow out over top of our eyes. And as the mid and lower facial anatomy is shrinking backwards, uh, becoming both reduced and retracted, what happens to the eyes in a functional sense. So I developed this theory. I published a paper in 2012 in the journal Medical Hypotheses, where I um, I, I lay out an argument based on current research about um, how these two competing craniofacial characteristics with the eye stuck in the middle may help explain the high frequency and the increasing frequency of juvenile onset myopia and uh, also astigmatism, which is a malformation of the eye. And what you see is that the eye projects out of the orbit more and it's squished, which is what you would expect if there is a superior, inferior uh, pressure being applied to it. There's just not enough space for not just the eye, but there's a lot of ocular fat, there's, there's the rectus muscles and all of these other characteristics of the soft tissue of the eye. And the skull is obviously hard. The eye is soft, so it may um, be malformed throughout growth and development. And and another evidence of this is the fact that people in East Asia have upwards of 80% rate of myopia, whereas other populations that have a different craniofacial form, that's not so, um, uh, rounded skull, smaller face, retracted face have much lower rates of myopia. So even just in a modern human context, you, you see that I am going somewhere with this, I promise. Um, So one of the things I argue in this paper is that it's also an aspect of pleiotropy, which uh, creates an extra set of problems because the eye grows out of the brain during early fetal ontogeny. So it is the brain, essentially. Um, So what pleiotropy is, it's when you have the same gene or sets of genes controlling the development of what are two arguably different characteristics. And in this case, we, we separate the brain from the eye. But the way they develop, the way they grow, they are most likely under um, the same pleiotropic gene control mechanism. So as our brains get bigger, our eyes would be expected to get bigger as well. So I think the the larger eyes is, is just a pleiotropic uh, down, downstream result of increased um, encephalization, increased brain size.
0: You know, one of the things I, I think about is... If we were to keep developing in our intelligence, wouldn't we be off-planet somewhere as well, not just here? And as things stand, you know, we really need about two planets worth of resources to keep everyone going in the world. And if everyone lived like Americans, we would need five planets worth of resources. So what happens, we're going we're gonna to breach uh, 8 billion people on this planet fairly soon. So, I mean, I'm just wondering when in society we'll get a hold of uh, this type of growth compared to the resources we have and how we can get into the future without, uh, you know, having a terrible famine and and all that, which is.
2: Yeah. If there's one overarching theme in this most recent book, it, it is reproduction and fertility because it it's the it's the most ubiquitous characteristics of these abductions is the gamete extractions sperm in men eggs and mm-hmm. women gestating fetuses and when there's a very clear focus on reproduction right um yeah. and i offer some potential explanations for that in my first book i talked about um just homozygous recessive characteristics this sort of um Increase in these negative gene traits that result from incest, because we used to have all of these different populations and there's gene flow among them. They were introducing new genes to each other. Now you can fly 30 hours and make a baby with someone across the world we're, we're interconnected. We've become one isolated population, one isolated gene pool. And there could be some potential problems that come with that. Um, there's also the fact that we've seen, I think it's a 60% reduction in sperm counts in men in the Western world over the last 40 years, people are choosing not to have children. We see, uh, an increase in in vitro fertilization and, and just issues with fertility in general. And, and this is something you would expect in a highly domesticated species like us. We, we domesticated ourselves beginning, there's a debate about that possibly as early as, 20 30,000 years ago definitely with agriculture beginning about 12,000 years ago with the Neolithic revolution. So as we self-domesticate and as we domesticate other animals, one of the main things we do with them is manipulate their fertility. We we select certain traits. We will will uh, on I grew up on a horse farm and we would ship in uh sperm and egg from these Belgian horses in Belgium all the way across the ocean. So we're We're already doing this with other animals. I think at some point we might have to do it to ourselves simply because our population struggles with making enough people. So to address your question, I don't know if we really have to worry about that. It's been something people have been talking about for hundreds of years. It was Thomas Malthus's whole argument in the 1800s that uh, the food supply can't keep up with the population. There'll be wars and famine and uh, Darwin and Wallace used that as a, an aspect of their theory of natural selection, but it hasn't happened yet. And, and most, um, most geographers think that we, we are going to peak at around eight or 10 billion and then it'll actually decline. And it's the population decline that they see as being more problematic. Elon Musk even said this recently, and I wrote a lot about this in my most recent book that the population decline may have more of an impact on our society and politics than the population expanse that a lot of people think uh, characterizes the human future.
0: I know. I realized that our financially we're geared to go to an ever growing population to cover for our seniors. You yeah. Know, uh, yeah. That's and, a
2: big part of it. It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Social security is a Ponzi scheme.
0: And basically, basically, you know, we're, we have about like three minutes left and I'm wondering if I could go What's, a little bit longer. possible. I know. I wondered if I could go a little bit longer with you because I have a lot of people in chat that have left questions and I'm wondering if I can get those answered as we go along.
2: Yeah. Like I told you, it was taco Tuesday. So I know it is. I got uh, 15 more minutes. Okay. Tacos on the mind, Martin,
0: <laughs> but you can hit 15 more minutes. You can make it right. I'm that. putting you right on the spot here. <laughs> um, but, um, so just to let the uh, listener know, I'm going to drop out of KGRA radio, um, in just a minute here. And, uh, Uh, Next week, we have uh, Stephanie Elizabeth, who uh, does a lot of work on on UFO. She's going to be joining us next week. So um, hang in there. Um, People on YouTube and Facebook, Twitch, we're going to be right back right after these messages and on KGRA Radio. We'll see you next week. All right. Thank you, Michael, for hanging in again. We'll go about another 15 minutes or so or or less if I can get through these questions, um, because I do appreciate the people that are showing up here and uh, adjusting to the new time that I have here. So here's a question here. Um, Could black matter, dark uh, and uh, black, dark energy be other dimensions? I mean, um, and and do you yeah, you you mentioned dimensions, right? I mean, you that is part of what you're doing in your new book. Um, now, yeah, this is I another do, I question. Do talk about the yeah.
2: interdimensional theory, definitely. Um, it, and I'll I'll try to get both of these at the same time.
0: Yeah, they're kind of similar.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. We don't know what dark matter is. There's a lot of really smart people working on that, and until we do, I don't think we can write off things like that i think we should definitely keep everything on the table um the the, my own personal view on this is that black holes take the the matter from this universe this time and funnel it back to the singularity that started the big bang at the beginning of the universe i think and this might be an example of cyclic time which you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. where everything is self-contained in the block universe and the the black holes are essentially a recycling bin that takes matter back to the original, um, singularity that created that same universe in perpetuity. Wow. Um, but, but dark energy, dark matter, it's so prolific. It, it may be involved in this. It may, you know, maybe inside black holes are different dimensions and that's why we haven't discovered them yet and possibly can't because you can't escape a singularity. Um, so it's impossible to study anything. We can't even send light, back if we could code things in photons. So there, there are definitely limitations there. Um, at Actually, it was the, the 2019 International UFO Congress. Mark D'Antonio gave a talk about this very question where he had a, a, a moment where he thought he saw into another universe or another reality that was somehow connected to or tangential to this one. And, and the whole term paranormal, it means running Uh, In parallel to the normal, there's this other Mm -hmm. thing that exists just outside of our reach. You know, a lot of people have near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences that would seem to put them in a different plane of existence. Is that a different universe? Is it, you know, is it a part of our reality, just a different way of conceptualizing it? I I don't know. I'll have to do more drugs and figure that out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The mushrooms. Uh, Let's see. Uh, let's see. Here's another question here. Isn't space travel, which we know is possible, uh, more apparent, how do you Parsimonious. Yeah. Parsimonious explanation than time travel.
2: Yeah. And I got asked this by a, a fantastic journalist, uh, named Leonard David. He, he writes for space.com, puts out a lot of good content. Um, and I, oh, yeah. and I actually argued the opposite that we know we're here. We know we live here and we know we've had a long evolutionary history on this planet that is likely to continue into the future. So just keeping with humans itself is the more parsimonious explanation. Once we interject the possibility of other beings on other planets, it's now taking us away from what we know as real and right now. Um, There's also the issue of time dilation and and obviously UFOs can move very fast. There's no doubt in my mind that an advanced species could be able to traverse the stars. And uh, if they were able to discover intelligent life, uh, we've only been sending out radio signals for something like 40 years, I think it's in the 1970s. So it's only 40 late years out from us that we would even be discoverable. However, there's no doubt in my mind that we could traverse massive distances, but the time dilation aspect of that is what gets me. And the, the faster you move relative to the speed of light, the slower time goes for you in that craft relative to everyone back home. So if you even go on, a, let's say, a three-year voyage through space at 80% the speed of light, you come home, and now everybody that you knew is much older. And, and many of them are probably dead, and your society is probably different. It may not exist at all. So I think one thing I've been arguing lately is that I think we might need to develop backward time travel technology simply to be interstellar space-faring humans because nobody would do that. Nobody would sign on to do that if we develop the technology to travel that fast, but you have to come back and your kids are now in high school when they were just babies before. You're not going to get anybody to sign up to that project. So I, I almost think that Interstellar travel is going to require uh, backward time travel technology, and maybe the private private sector will be involved, too, with time tourism. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, I, I do really think that the future human hypothesis innately is uh, more more parsimonious. You mentioned Mark D'Antonio. He just did a talk
0: in Pine Bush, where I was at there as well, and about a way to travel to jump in and out of what did he say uh it all had to do with the m- multiverse type thing it was very fascinating mm-hmm. maybe you and him can catch up I he might be out at phoenix so i'm not sure if he's going to be out there
2: yeah i had a lot of questions for him it, it was a busy weekend so i didn't get a chance to chat but it was a really fascinating talk here's another
0: question here um how many well this is for an opinion how many dimensions
2: do you think may exist? You know, I mean, nobody really knows. I, at this point and and obviously whatever these UFOs are, um, they operate with either a different type of physics or different understanding of the same physics that we don't yet have. Um, so it is possible, you know, maybe there's an extra dimension of time that they use. Maybe consciousness hmm. exists in a fifth dimension. And Hmm. it's, it's fundamental in some way to what this phenomenon is. Um, but all I can say is what the current literature says. And that is that currently we have no evidence for anything outside of our three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, which in Minkowski space, time are the same thing. So I, I, guess I have to go with that. That's how many I think there are. And until there's good evidence, um, for some higher dimensions, I I don't know. And, you know, I I love Flatland, Edwin Abbott's book, Flatland, really opens the mind to what things might look like with higher dimensions just based on our own conceptualization of of two and three within his uh, satirical political book. But um, I don't know. There are some aspects of these craft that do indicate that there might be something more going on and maybe that involves higher dimensions.
0: Well, I never thought of it like that type of, uh, travel, uh, you know, a lot of people are bringing up, you know, the connection between consciousness and what UFOs may or may not be. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's all fascinating. Uh, do earlier smaller brained primates have smaller eyes than we do?
2: Yeah. Re- well, relative to the size of their orbits. Yes. Uh, I published a paper, you know, th- I don't know, four years ago, maybe, where we looked at uh, chimpanzee eyes in the context of their their skulls and and they their eyes were slightly smaller, but there was also way more room in there. Um, and mm. the the ocular fat is mostly what made up for that difference is their, um <clears throat> Their the rectus muscles are equivalent to our own. Their eyes were a little bit smaller, but their uh, ocular fat was off the charts and, and in fact homo heidelbergensis uh homo neanderthalensis, who we aren't directly descended from but are still uh similar we split off from them around the time of homo heidelbergensis they had massive eye orbits um hmm. almost twice the size of our own but we can't just assume they had bigger eyes um they mostly mm-hmm. had more of the chimpanzee characteristic especially because they lived in a very cold environment the neanderthals specifically so it was probably um an ocular fat sort of um Cushioning slash insulation situation, um, and and wow. the other, the other thing that often gets mentioned just real quick is that our brains have been shrinking, and we we used to think it was thirty thousand years that they had been shrinking, but a recent study that just came out in the last month or so showed it's only about three thousand years that's been getting smaller, and there have been these diachronic changes. I reference a paper in my most recent book that shows that a brain that's about three thousand cubic centimeters. Is the ideal size for efficiency, it's the most efficient brain. And that's uh, that doubles the size that we have now. We're about 14 to 1600 cubic centimeters. The brain of chimpanzees and our early hominins was about 400 cubic centimeters. So we'd have a a tripling of our brain size. Actually, I think it was a tripling that they said too, It's 3,500 cubic centimeters. So it was almost three times what our brain size is. And if there is a pleiotropic relationship between the brain and the eye, and we triple the size of our brain we might expect the eye to to triple in size as well
0: wow that's all fascinating um here's a like a star wars type question could the greys come from the very distant past probably not well, our
2: past or could they not not our past no um maybe someone else's past and they that, that was something whitley Strieber pointed out in the book communion is that you know it could be um an extraterrestrial species that that comes here who can travel through space and possibly in the way I described by mitigating the effects of time dilation, travel back through time. So when they got home, they could still, you know, say hi to their, their, their families on the same day. Um, But that they come to this different planet and then go back through time to sort of see what we're like. And, and that, you know, would be a possibility if the greys were extraterrestrial, if they were extratempestrial, which is what I argue, they would have to come from our future simply because we would be their ancestors and it would take us existing now and in the past to further evolve to become them. So there, this crypto terrestrial idea has been around for a while. It, it doesn't really make sense in the context of human evolution, but uh, it, it still should be discussed, I guess.
0: Um, when you say that uh, about, you know, not manipulating things or influencing or whatever uh you know you hear all the time well why don't they just show themselves to us and you know some people say well obviously they want us to see their crafts because there's no reason why they should have lights on them but there are lights on them but then you get to the point where people always say well until one lands on the white house lawn so a time traveler obviously would not want to land on the white house lawn and show themselves to the world right not yet because they'd be influencing i'm just trying to go along no it's not about
2: influence again though like they can do that at any point and i think they actually will and i think we're on a path to understanding that reality i think what's been happening and i i talk about this in the last chapter of my first book identified flying objects where if we get to the point where we can understand who they are what they're doing when they're coming from why they're doing these things, how they're doing it, how they're manipulating space-time in these ways, there's nothing paradoxical about them introducing themselves, about them landing on the White House lawn, about us having coffee with them. And I, and I talk about these time races where, in the same way that you, you you might be traveling and see people from all parts of the world, at some point in the near future, once we get to the point where we recognize the reality of this, if it is actually the case, there, there's nothing that prohibits deep interaction Where we could have, uh, be walking around, see people from 3,000 years in the future, 200 years in the future. Uh, Possibly they go back and get some really uh, (laughs) enlightened people from the past and bring them into the future or into our present. There's nothing that prohibits that you can build these bridges. And I think the issue is just where we were in our conceptualization of it. We didn't have, and still don't, though I think we're getting close, the capacity to understand this. We, we all watched Back to the Future and it ruined our brains. And it set us back like 20 years in our ability to understand the reality of the block universe. And it sucks. And there's been a lot of like I mentioned dark a lot. This German show, they clearly consulted with with physicists on this because they do a really good job adhering to the block universe model in the show. And it's extremely entertaining. I, I will admit I've, I've been consulting for some people, uh, screenplay writers who are, are doing movie scripts that involve backward time travel. And there's way more you can do outside the block universe. It's somewhat limiting, but the universe as we know, it is a block universe. And within that, there's nothing that would keep us from landing on the white house lawn in the future and and really starting to interact with and possibly even marry and have children with people from different times in the same way that we do with people from different geographic, um, Places today. Um,
0: what about, you would think that, you know, obviously we need a lot of help here and we're taking a lot of, I think a lot of, we're doing things wrong um, for the planet in general. You would, th- do you think that they would come back and say, hey, look, you know, we, we talked earlier, or you spoke earlier on about the telepathy people claim that they're having and a lot of it has to do with the earth is being destroyed or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, do you think that there would be some type of intervention if we we're right, you know, right at the edge of the brink of disaster?
2: I do. Yeah. And and I this is really where I got deep into the weeds on the whole uh, multiverse block time thing with regard to the nuclear question. Because if we did nuke ourselves, they couldn't change that. Uh. But... When when we were shooting each other with spears and bows and arrows, uh, beating each other on the head with logs, that's you know th- their focus was probably a little different uh, yeah. than when mm-hmm. we got to the point that we could annihilate millions of people at one time, and most importantly, taint the planet that they may need to inherit from us at some yeah. point in the future. And that's a long-lasting thing. That's not Very like long a big club that you can hit a million people on the head with at one time. There's nuclear fallout that lasts for depending on the type of bomb, you know, thousands, millions of years. So, right. Uh I I do kind of think they see us as children juggling chainsaws high on acid in a okay. treetop somewhere. They they think that we are irresponsible and because we are, and we have proven that many times, and because we have weapons that could potentially uh, harm the planet that we might both call home, I, I do think that that helps explain some of those things. And again, not that they were trying to change something that happened, that they may maybe are monitoring, and maybe that's why they're seen so often around um, these Navy ships and, and all of these military vehicles of the Western world, because they want to make sure they have a good bead on what we're doing At any given time, just in case they notice a problem ahead of time that we don't and they can shut it down. I think it's more of a preventative thing. But again, I do talk about it in the context of the multiverse, too, in which case you could change the past in certain timelines. And and that should be discussed as well.
0: Uh, This uh, gentleman's asked this question a few times. Similar. Can one self tap into another self multiverse to see. uh, See what. Uh, do you kind of understand that one?
2: Yeah. Um, and, and if different timelines exist, if different universes exist, I don't see why not. And I guess that's what I was trying to say about, you know, some of these um, paranormal, perinormal, I started calling them because it's a slightly less tainted word, experiences people have. You know, maybe the UFO phenomenon is related to that. I don't think it is personally. But on an individual level, if we're talking about the mind and the soul and consciousness... Um, I don't see any reason why if, if the, the, the mind seems to be bound by the body, but only while this body exists. And then once the body Mm. doesn't exist, it's liberated. And you see Mm. this over and over again with, uh, remote viewers are good at doing it. Near death experiences, um, are Mm. a very common case where people separate from their body and they're unbound from space and time. A lot of people who have past life experiences, and, and my wife and I are, are funny in this respect because she remembers past lives. I have only lived in this body. And I think when I die, I just start over again. I go back to whenever the pineal gland or whatever, however, the soul enters the body and live this life over and over. And I think it helps explain a lot of my precognition that I've had since I was a very small child. Um, but others who who enter other bodies in different times why couldn't that extend to the multiverse if the multiverse exists where you you can connect with your consciousness in different dimensions different universes as opposed to just different times within the block universe
0: wow this is also fascinating and i I think the talk could last forever i know you got to get to your tacos it's taco time (laughs) thanks so much and i look forward to seeing you in a
2: couple of months absolutely martin thanks for having me on it's always All right. Can you you. uh, mention the
0: title one more time of your book? It's down below in the show notes.
2: Yeah. The first book is Identified Flying Objects. It's more of a a hard science. It's been referred to as dense, um, but I I do think it's a good way of sort of interjecting the idea and and getting a foundation. And then the extra tempestrial model is the most recent one and it's, it's much more readable, um, but it's not as, as, as sciencey. It's more of uh, stories, it's telling stories and then interjecting that science where, wherever it seems appropriate. Um, but yeah, both nice. have been super fun and, and talking to people like you and and so many others that have come across as a result of these projects is, has been a delight, so, so thank you. Thank you
0: very much. All right, we'll see you soon. Take, Take care. You thank you. All right, everyone, so that's it for tonight. Thank you so much for watching. We'll be back next week with Stephanie Elizabeth And we'll see you then at seven o'clock next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. By the way, I might be on my boat next week, depending on the weather. See you then.